Welcome to the Cricket's Sidecar, where we go a little further into a story of note with the person who wrote it. Well, hello. Welcome to Sidecar. I'm Erica Brown. I'm the editor and publisher of the Manchester Cricket. And I am here on a lovely afternoon with Chris McGinn, our features editor of the paper. Hi, Chris. Hello, Erica. <laughs> Today we have something special, don't we, Chris? Very special. <laughs> so, so special. Actually, what we're doing in 2023 is we're going to be having these podcasts between the two of us. And this is just so we can sort of lay the context. And they're easy conversations. And occasionally we're going to have guests. And today we have our first guest. Lucky day. All righty. Well, welcome, Robert Booth. Bob. Bob Booth. Hi. Thank you, Erica. It's so nice to see you again. Right. Well, and Bob, you, Chris. <laughs> Hi, Bob. Hi. All right. Bob Booth, just for anyone who doesn't know, is uh, the executive director and the curator at the Manchester Historical Museum. I know you just cringed when I said executive, because I know technically you're the director and curator, but I always like to stick in executive. <laughs> I love you, Erica. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So... Bob Booth, for people who don't know, Bob Booth came to the Manchester Historical Museum about a year ago now um, as the interim director. So you've been the you've been formalized for only about six months. It's about right. Yeah. yeah. We're very lucky to have him Definitely. at the at the museum. You're not gonna say it, so I will, just really quickly. You are a historian and a writer, a writer of history. And one of your books, which is an excellent book, I really recommend, is Death of an Empire, which is a nonfiction book about Salem, Massachusetts, and the world as a worldwide trading center. And it was actually a Boston Globe's bestseller, and it was named Best Book of New England History in 2012. So I always like to stick that in. You've written many other books, The Women of Marblehead, mm. right, Bob? I admit that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so you're just an incredible historical asset for the town and for the museum. So I just Thank wanted you. to sort of get your bona fides out there. Definitely. Well, here's the reason why we have you here. <laughs> Lucky this us. week was your debut um, with the paper of a biweekly column that you're going to be writing as the curator and director of the museum on the sort of historic bits, and some might go a little deeper. And this week, it's the Sea Serpent of Cape Ann. Is that correct? Yes, a nonfiction account of an actual sea serpent of Cape Ann. Yeah, well, I will tell you this. Cape Ann Museum, Chris, out in front of the Cape Ann Museum on Pleasant Street is what? Oh, right, of course, is our local Williams sculpture. It is Chris Williams Chris of Essex. Williams. Yes, of course, of, of the, the sea, serpent. sea serpent. And that is the very sea serpent. And I have been told that it is inspired by something that was the topic of today's column, this week's column. So let's get into it. So tell us about the sea serpent. We're, you're going to take us back to 1817? I am. I'm going to take you back. Return with us now to the summer of 1817, August. It's after the War of 1812. In the country, it's the era of good feelings. But locally, it is the era of semi-hallucinatory sightings of an enormous critter that is feeding off of Cape Ann. And the first people to see this enormous critter are, of course, the local fishermen and mariners who are out on the water. And there is no precedent for this. This is a gigantic creature, much bigger than any whale these guys have ever seen, yeah. and very different in shape and behavior from a whale. So for the first few days, probably none of these guys was willing to cop to what they were seeing. Hmm. Mariners were 
known to be heavy drinkers in the first place and didn't always have a lot of credibility on shore. <laughs> For sightings. Right, sea serpent. Yes. So there was no local tradition of this enormous creature, uh, but down east in Maine. And, you know, these guys were constantly going down along the coast to pick up fuel from Maine and go fishing in the Gulf of Maine. So they were quite familiar with the lore of, of the waters on, of coastal Maine. And in 1793, and again in 1807, off what is now Bar Harbor in Maine, mm -hmm. this same kind of critter was spotted. So it, it was not an unfamiliar concept, but no one had ever seen one like this down here. So this isn't a serpent like a snake. This is a serpent no. as in 100 feet, feet long? This and is what we would think of as some form of plesiosaur. This is a living fossil right. animal that somehow had survived. And were seen around the world. In, in the 1740s, there was one off Norway, and that's where the term kraken mm -hmm. uh, right, comes from. And it, that, and it was a frequent visitor. Uh, up there uh, in, in Norway, uh, enough so that it, it had some fame in Europe and a lot of people speculated. Just, this is just the moment you know, of the Enlightenment where people are realizing that these bones that they're pulling out of the ground must be about some kind of prehistory Right. It doesn't involve God making the earth in seven days. <laughs> uh, so it's really fascinating to them, not only to, at that moment in Europe in the mid-18th century, to be discovering you know, uh, fossil remains of a whole earlier set of animals, but then to find them in, living in the seas. So it was a big deal in Europe, but it wasn't something that came across... It was known in America as this phenomenon that was so interesting in Europe, but it's not until apparently the 1790s that it has any kind of analog in the actual waters of New England in this rather skeptical early republic that we have where people want evidence instead of mythology, right? Right. Hmm. So, yeah. So these, this kind of a thing, this kind of creature had been spotted and was considered real by the community of mariners. Yeah. But as I say, really, mariners didn't have a lot of credibility when they came ashore. So to have it suddenly appear, mm -hmm. and in this case, we know that it appeared one day on, in mid-August of 1817, right off Kettle Cove, Kettle Manchester. Cove, right. Yeah. Here is this thing out there feeding, and of course that's what they, it's a huge animal, so right. it needs to feed all the time, right? right. And uh, Joseph Lee is apparently the master of a schooner. It's not clear to me that the, the schooner Hazard. The Hazard. The I hazard. remember that from yeah. your piece. Right. Well, yeah. well named. <laughs> uh, it's not clear to me whether this is a fishing schooner. Doesn't seem all that likely because schooners didn't fish in local waters. They were up into the Gulf of Maine and off Nova Scotia and mm. out to the Grand Bank. So it's more likely that this was a schooner that was getting wood from Maine, you know, bringing, bringing okay. fuel wood okay. down to the towns here, which is what we would have called a coasting schooner. 
But anyway, he's out there in the hazard off Kettle Cove, and somebody spots this very strange thing happening just about 200 yards away from where the schooner is lying at anchor. Mm-hmm. And apparently nobody else was real interested in uh, wanting to get close to this potentially <laughs> dangerous and um, certainly baffling phenomenon out there on the surface of the water just a little ways away. But Joseph Lee decides to lower himself in the schooner's boat, and we can imagine him probably sailing. It's probably, it's probably got a little pop-up mast, mm. and he decides that he wants to get close to this thing. So he... Sails away by himself toward whatever this disturbance is, and he gets within, uh, he says, 70, 70 yards, yards. Like roughly yeah. 200 feet. And since the animal is very large mm. to begin with, mm. he's getting a pretty good look at what's happening. Right. And he says that he's concerned about his safety at that point. So he stops, but he takes a really hard look at what he thinks he's seeing. Enough so that he's able upon his return either to the schooner or maybe to the shore to set down with some skill to set down. I agree. It's quite nice. Yeah. To set, to set down a pen and ink Mm -hmm. sketch of this animal. And so what we see is this large animal that has turned itself into a hoop that is making a circle He depicts the head as looking a good bit like what we might think of as a crocodile's head. Mm -hmm. Uh, Long upper and lower jaws, really serious tongue sticking out, really greedy looking eye. (laughs) And what the animal has done, and it's so interesting because this is what whales do when they feed. He doesn't state this because he does write, he also writes a description of what he did that day. And he doesn't say it, but you see this animal forming a loop. And inside the loop of itself, with the head pointed towards the center, there are a bunch of fish. Mm -hmm. And what whales will do is get under a school of fish and circle around and and put bubbles up and disorient the school. Mm, So a, a, a school of fish is usually led by a leader. But if you can cut the fish, the school off from its leader, mm-hmm. the fish get confused. Right. And, it's and now they're going time. every which way. Right. And it's, it's snack time for sea service. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah. Right. So and that so that's what you're seeing that's is interesting. this. Oh, so that's fascinating because i I actually knew this about whales, but when I looked at this incredible image, which everybody should check out, it's wonderful. I didn't realize I thought perhaps it was like an artistic interpretation or just a way to draw everything. I didn't consider that this was a method by which the kraken. I would was completely hunting. agree. I completely agree. I yeah. saw the illustration, and it's a drawing on a archival paper, which is that's what we call it now. But yes. he, he wrote it. It's pen and ink drawing that you have in the collection, collection. of the museum that you write about. So I want to make sure that was clear. But I like you, Chris. Yeah. I had no idea. I, I thought it was artistic because it's in a beautiful circle and it's you know right uh, and the fish are inside but uh, well, yeah, well he's, he's very interesting he's did, definitely reporting on what he's saying so did lee yeah. write that that's that was his idea that this is how no. the sea serpent was no, hunting it's okay. your interpretation okay. Bob, got right? it got it yeah that is but yeah. 
you know, why would he have put this thing in a circle if that's not what he saw? Mm-hmm. He, he deliberately went out to see what this was. Right. And given that that was his mission, it would have been strange if he'd drawn a different kind of picture from exactly what he had seen. Yeah, Agreed. that's interesting. Yeah. And, and he writes that he was there for 20 minutes, about 20 minutes by his estimation. He and he saw this creature... 100 feet long. He couldn't ascertain totally, but he said it was about 100 feet long. Very interesting. Yep. Yes. Apparently, the next, is it true, the next day, if I remember correctly, it was, there were accounts of seeing it in Salem. Um, No, what, but that's close. Okay. So, you know, I'm an historian, right? So I have this one artifact that we have in the collection of the Manchester Historical Museum. But, of course, that's not the only person who saw it that mm-hmm. day. It was mm-hmm. a big deal. Right. How often do you get visited by a 100-foot-long sea serpent? So there were a lot of people quite interested in this thing. And I have a go-to guy for local commentary, and that is the only person who kept a daily diary for this part of Essex County was the Reverend William Bentley mm-hmm. uh, of the East Church in Salem, and he knew everything that was going on. He had his scouts out there reporting to him. And so that very day that Joseph Lee makes his record of what he saw, William Bentley is making a record in his diary that people from Cape Ann are Uh, encountering. uh, Off Ten Pound Island. Uh, Uh, Inside of Ten Pound Island. Yeah. So this thing is actually moved from off Kettle Cove right into the inner harbor and you could imagine, like, so hundreds of people, <laughs> thousands of people are now lining the shore to see this crazy of thing. Of course. And, and Bentley, uh, interestingly, Bentley describes the thing quite differently. Of course, he didn't see it. He's basing it on secondary sources, but he's got his reporters. So here we have a depiction of, thing, of something that really does look like a serpent, it only has one tiny fin. In the Joseph Lee picture, it's got one tiny dorsal fin. Mm-hmm. Right. Otherwise, nothing that would seem to propel it through the water. You know, mm-hmm. no big fins or anything. Right. Whereas Bentley describes it, based on his sources, as looking like something made out of kegs. Yeah. In the water. Ah, and, sort of segmented. Yes, as if it were segmented. But um, this is just an initial impression of... Hmm people who've seen this insane vision, this hallucinatory thing for the first time, right? But according to his writings, which I'm just reading your article about Bennett, he actually said that they had received hundreds of letters. So this wasn't something that one or two or 10 people saw in an isolated incident. You know, William Bentley said, we had received, not hundreds of letters, I'm sorry. We had received letter upon letter. Like it, it was many people... And, and it was very interesting. And yes, you're right. It was described as segmented. And you were going to continue. I don't well, want to take I, I, your thunder. Yeah, yeah, no, I was going to say. So I think what we can... Certainly there are later sightings. You know, this, this animal haunts the coast between the haunt and Gloucester for the next two summers. So, yeah. So it, it returns in, in the summer of 1816. It returns in the summer of 1817. Lots and lots of people now have a chance to see it. No, and mm-hmm. so it's just it's it's returning to to feed. This it's is returning what returning to feed. And, yeah. and do we know what it, it just on 
you know, the general fish population. It wasn't seals or anything like that. There wasn't anything. It was always just fish. Right. So, you know, uh, mackerel always, there to this day, sure. mackerel school in Salem Sound. and okay. Yeah, so it's probably eating smallish fish. You can see the head isn't that big. So it's not going after tuna fish or anything. It's right. going after fish that could swallow easily. But Although it is interesting that Bentley, and you, I thought this was what you were going to say before I cut you off, yep. <laughs> is, it's funny, the eyewitness accounts, quote unquote, you know, the letters, mm-hmm. they said it, he had a head like a, uh, like a horse. That's right. Which was not what Joseph Lee, and I'm wondering, mm-hmm. and this leads me to ask you this question, do you think that the Joseph Lee depiction, do you think Joseph Lee is the most important eyewitness that we have records of because he was up close, he studied, he had intent, and he was there for 20 minutes. Right. Yes, he is. Now, what? how clearly he could see this critter. It's underwater, you know? It's not sitting up on the surface saying hello to Joseph Lee. <laughs> right. It's, you know, it's, it's a heavy, it's a heavy, big, whatever it is kind of fish, and it's probably five or six feet under the water, making mm-hmm. making mm-hmm. this circle. Lee does not describe it as, as the head coming out of the water. Now, later observers do. They'll say, and when I say later, I mean just a week later, mm-hmm. people keep encountering this, this thing. And it comes right into Gloucester Harbor, too. And they'll, they'll say, well, it would raise its head three or four feet out of the water, and its head looked like a horse. But, of course, once it's got its neck up, and its head coming at you, it might well have reminded people more of a horse than what Lee is mm-hmm. was able to see. Right. Got, first of all, everyone's got horses in their heads. There's horses sure. all over, everywhere. Of sure. course, that's how people got right. around. And you know, they're on top of a horse's neck. Here's this big animal with a long, you know, a three foot neck sticking out of the water. What would they? think they'd think horse horse-like right. so maybe maybe whatever you know lee can't get a perfectly clear view of course but it's his impression that this thing looks more like an alligator head than a horse's head at any rate what's what's really interesting is lee apparently never saw this thing moving through the water it saw it feeding in the water making making a loop around fish in order to make a meal now other people see this thing moving horizontally through the water. Hmm. And that is why Bentley describes it as being like a series of kegs. Because what's actually happening is as this animal moves through the water, it's not like a snake. It's not going side to side in a serpentine fashion. It's going up and down. It's going up and down. So these keg-like things that you're seeing are actually the ripples of the spine as this thing moves towards you through the water. Just like all the pictures I grew up on with the Loch Ness Monster. With, Le- with Nessie. I mean, <laughs> Who the I was obvious Nessie with. connection is huge. So, it, it, right? Ne- and it's that, Nessie, that, that, you know, ribbon-like sort yeah. of yeah. vertical movement. Yeah, Nessie is a movement. function of, is this 20th century phenomenon, yes? Or, or, or is that yeah, not really... Not totally debunked, but not this. This, <laughs> this is, is not real. debunkable. <laughs> the undebunkable sea serpent. The undebunkable sea serpent. Is, I love it. Yeah. Well, so what's marvelous is we can go, in time we'll be able to go visit this beautiful, beautiful illustration, this beautiful drawing, and, the, and see the written words of And Lee. it is the only depiction of all the people that saw this thing, you know, from a distance right. or up close. Mm. Apparently the only person 
whoever thought to reduce it to paper mm-hmm. is Joseph Lee. Mm-hmm. Like on day one of the visit of this thing right. to this area. Right. There's a lithograph that is just this absurd version of it. Uh, and there are descriptions, verbal descriptions. Yep. And some of them are quite detailed. A bunch of people from Harvard came up to try and get mm. a look at it. And their early understanding of the science of things completely misled them into a really ludicrous and, and rather infamous report on their experiences at Cape Ann, which, you know, we don't want to... You could write a whole book on this incident and what people thought they were seeing and what they actually did see mm. and what kind of science they were bringing to it or lack of science. It's really fascinating. But anyway, this is the only picture that we know of that has survived of someone who was actually looking into the water 200 feet away at this remarkable yeah. visitor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how lucky are we that we have it here? In okay, town? I don't know about you, but I am for making August 15th. <laughs> um, <laughs> totally. Bring on and the t shirts. And by t-shirts. the way, that, exactly. Bring on the t shirts <laughs> and make this an annual festival. Um, and by the oh, way, God. I really do think we should kick the Norway Kraken nomenclature. We should come up with our own. Totally. I agree. I yes. agree. I can see a parade with everyone making their best rendition of the sea serpent. All the Not kids in town. Not side to side, though. Yeah, the Not way it moves will be, there'll be, a, there'll be a judging. There yep. will be t-shirts. Up and down. Yep. I think I this it. is a good thing. I love yep. it. I'm really looking forward to seeing this at the museum. I feel I very lucky. See well, at the I, museum, I should... read the article. It's like really, it's it's short, but it's really awesome. It's really great. Thank yes. And and I would like to say, you know, we have the museum closed right now. We are under renovations and mm-hmm. are doing a complete reinterpretation of the experience of the first floor. So I should further state that this incredibly important archival document that we have is out right now for safekeeping and improving of its um, acid-free environment. That's great. Excellent. So it'll be back in three to four weeks so this isn't a great time to for anyone to come in okay. to see it because it's not there. <laughs> sort of the way the sea difficult. serpent isn't that's right. there it's it anymore. Appearance. It's Elusive. like you have to hunt. And that's yeah. the charm. That's yeah. the experience. In fact, you may see it, in fact you may rather not. than come into the museum, why don't you get out in a skiff right. it's a bit and, of a and look for a sea serpent? Party. It's part of a new trend like in, in small museums, which is experiential. It's We're trying to recre- recreate the experience of seeing the serpent, Wait. which is oh. it's not always there. <laughs> Fantastic. You heard it here first. All right. Thank well, you that's, for helping me through that. Well, that actually is a really interesting segue, if you don't mind, and if we sure. have a, a couple more minutes. Um, I think don't it would go. be very interesting. <laughs> um, I would love to say, first of all, you have done a lot in terms of just resetting the baseline for the museum since you've arrived. I know that the programming that you put together and you curated some exhibits that were really interesting over the summer. Thank you, Erica. Why don't you talk to us a little bit? About, and one was uh, talking about sort of the diving into the working history. Here, I'll say it this way. Okay. Before Bob, I think that there was sort of an over-indexing on the Gilded Age as a theme and as sort of the beginning of Manchester by the sea. And I think people like that because it's beautiful, it's sexy, it's interesting, and whatever, sure. to, to some people. Right. 
The real interesting part of Manchester happened before that. And it has to do with Manchester being a community that, and by the way, you correct me, because I'm going to say this, and you're going to tell me if I'm a good student or not. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Manchester really was much more interesting than that, a struggling, small, sea neighborhood community, like a community with a small C, lowercase c, living and trying to survive and thrive and maybe make its way in the shadow of two much more successful communities in the shadow of two. That is Salem, which was a essentially, in my mind, back in the 1800s with global trade, it was like the Silicon Valley of its age. Mm. It was young, dangerous, uh, at the forefront of an unknown frontier that, was, that had great wealth in the balance. And I think that um, Gloucester was a similar thing, but it was different industries perhaps, and, but it was more successful. They were big cities, right. and Manchester was trying to make its way. And so... It sent its kids off to be low rungs on the totem pole on a schooner in Man- uh, in Salem, and they often didn't make it back. Right. These were young families just trying to make their way until they discovered and made their way in the areas of merchanteering, in some cases, and furniture making. Is that wrong? You're cringing when I said merchanteering. Well, it, the, it happened yeah. late. No, but that was a cringe. Your term, Erica. <laughs> I think, I think, right. I'm I think not a historian. I'm just a fan. It. I thought it was yeah. very good, Erica. All right, so yeah. why don't you... No, that's a great description, though. Um, it, no, it is. Well it is. A plus. It is. Manchester's early history, before the Bostonians discovered it as a uh, summer playground mm-hmm. for themselves, yeah. you know, just before the Civil Wars when that got serious. And it, that's such an interesting phenomenon. Who were these people from Boston? Mm. They really were the cream of Boston society at that time, which is such an interesting place. You know, mm. that's, that is the Athens of America. These people were the public intellectuals. You know, they had Harvard. They were getting a liberal arts education for the first time in, in America. And these guys, it was in a, a male society. So these guys were taking their, the money that their dads had given them and this beautiful education that they're receiving now. Mm. Some of them are going to France. The ones who are going to become doctors are going to France to get medical training. And the, the ones who are going to become language professors, you know, like Longfellow, are going to Germany, you know, mm. uh, to the great universities there and coming back to America with this amazing education, this completely different attitude with a head full of visual arts and wanting that to be part of their culture. And these are the people who come to Manchester starting in the 1840s. You know, they're not, it's not really about money. They've got money, but it's about culture and loving what they've learned and really digging each other and wanting to form the summertime community of, of simpatico uh, folk. But before that, you know, Manchester is a forgotten little hole-in-the-wall town between Gloucester, which, is, as you say, was sort of a sawed-off version of Salem. Mm-hmm. It had commerce, but it also had a great big fishery, and people mm-hmm. were, some people were getting rich in Gloucester. And then Salem, you know, let's face it, Unfortunately, there is Beverly between Manchester and Salem. Yeah, and I mentioned Beverly. Yeah, so, I mean, Beverly is also a fishing town, but it's a big town. And it, too, had some merchants in it. And merchants are the people who actually take things like all this fish that everyone's catching and package them into barrels. 
and they have great big trading ships and they send this stuff overseas. So they're taking on the burden of the capital investment and they have to find big time markets because it's 300 tons of fish. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to have a sale there. You can't just send the fish over and hope you'll sell. But so these guys are international traders in these other towns. Manchester, the key point about Manchester at the time that we're speaking of, before the Civil War, going back into its early history, is it had no harbor. Like the harbor that we have today was a creation of high rollers in the 1890s who wanted a beautiful harbor to park their yachts in. Mm. So it was, in the days we're speaking of, it was basically a salt marsh, and only at the very highest tide did it fill in and look like a harbor. And even then, it was a very shallow estuary. So that's what determined the history of Manchester. Since it didn't have a deep water harbor, it could never become a seaport. So It truly was Jeffrey's Creek. Which it was is, Jeffrey's Creek. Which was the name yeah. of Manchester. Right. Before yeah. Manchester, it was called Jeffrey's Creek. So you're looking at a very small town, very small population. No one wanted to move here. Mm. The people who grew up here loved their community. And you see it growing uh, by a birth rate, but not by an in-migration rate. Yeah. So by the 1820s and 30s, the, uh, the fishery, which was the main way that people earned their livings here, had begun to give way to other things. The brightest of the Manchester kids were always placed on, mainly on Salem vessels mm-hmm. as cabin boys. And that would be how every uh, little teenage kid at 13 or 14 got his chance to become a first mate eventually, or a shipmaster. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of them, of course, didn't make it. Most of them just stayed deckhands. The death rate was extremely high. But for a lot of Manchester kids, they had a, a really good local education in navigation, believe it or not. So they would be placed as cabin boys in Salem and Boston. And a pretty high percentage of them actually did go on to become mates of large uh, merchant vessels, and eventually shipmasters. But very few of them moved away. They really loved Manchester. So they, they would spend eight months of the year at sea on a merchant vessel, but their home was still in Manchester, and they would marry a Manchester woman. And, and so the, the community always had a little bit of money coming in from these guys in the merchant marine. And then most of the people, most of the young men in town would end up as fishermen who never, that was a subsistence kind of job. And then there were a few farmers, but so it went for 200 years in Mm, this town. mm. Um, No one ever really got rich. And the people who did start to get rich would always leave Manchester and go off to a a different place to keep rolling with, with the careers that they'd started. So as we look at this history, what I tried to do was interpret Manchester. This summer, we did a big exhibit on Manchester in 1772 just before the revolution, mm-hmm. a moment sort of in the mid-18th century, depicting this as a very small, sometimes struggling, working-class town that yet had a lot of pride and had a reputation outside of Manchester for the quality of these kids who were going into the merchant marine. And one of the nice things that we were able to do is to become the only place in Massachusetts that actually has material culture, meaning actual artifacts that relate to the salt cod fishery. None of that survived anywhere else, including Gloucester. 
So we put together a a reproduction of a fish yard where mm. the salt codfish would have been cured, showing, not just showing, but actually having a washout tub and the kind of equipment that was used in the um, curing of salt codfish, which was the main economic basis for the wealth of Massachusetts. So that was something good that we were able to accomplish, and that will, that will be a permanent part of how we interpret early Manchester, well, but that's... looking forward to the, to the later part of the 19th century and the advent of the Bostonians and then the next generation of, of great wealth that turns this place into such an interesting spot in the summertime and, and of course, translates in terms of splendid architecture. Yeah, mm. that was a very popular um, summer exhibit, um, the major public uh, exhibit um, at the museum. We're looking now into the fact that 2023 is the bicentennial of the museum of Abigail and celebrating Abigail Hooper Trask or Abigail yeah. Hooper. Sure. So I did the um, first in the series of lectures that we will be doing in this bicentennial year. I actually crammed it into a December lecture on Abigail Hooper Trask, who is the woman who, as Nabby Hooper, as an unmarried woman, Mm -hmm. had made her own fortune all by herself without the help of men. In fact, competing successfully with men. And as an unmarried woman at the age of 35, she had the wherewithal to build that house for herself. Uh, And so I, my first of what I hope will be several lectures, not all by me, on the uh, bicentennial history of the 19th century here in uh, Manchester, I did the story of, of Nabby Hooper, a girl like no other, mm-hmm. just showing the rise of the very improbable rise of this young girl in Manchester who alone of all young girls in Massachusetts was turned out to be uh, an unstoppable entrepreneurial force. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And she did it by not inheriting, as you said, not doing anything. She did it all by herself. Yep. All right, well, we're going to go into Nabby Hooper and all sorts of things around the uh, Manchester Historical Museum. It's artifacts throughout the year. You are now going to be writing a bi-weekly column for us, um, and we're going to learn all about Manchester's history will, as I like to say, unspool all year long. Just like, your writing, just like a sea serpent. Just like a sea serpent. And we're back to the original. So Look thank you so much. Done. This was great. Yes. Bob uh, Bob Booth. I almost said Bob Hooper. Isn't that funny? Like, because we were just talking about yep. Nabby Hooper. But anyway, Bob Booth, thank you so much for coming in. This was fantastic. Absolutely. Entirely my pleasure, Chris and Erica. So much fun. Thank Until you. Until next time. All righty. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sidecar. To hear more Cape Ann stories like these, subscribe to the Sidecar Podcast from thecricket.com on your favorite podcasting platform.